0: Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Ghost Spider Groupies, the podcast dedicated to Gwen Stacy of Earth 65, also known as Spider Gwen and Ghost Spider, where we review her comics, discuss news, and give our opinions about all things Gwen 65. I'm Pex.
1: And I'm Abigail. So for this week's Weekend update, we really don't have anything for Gwen 65 per se, but if you're a Gwen 616 fan... This is going to be spoilers for Amazing Spider-Man number 73 by Nick Spencer. Since past has been rectified.
0: It's no longer this egregious, awful sort of affair thing between Norman Osborn and Gwen Stacy now. It's been retconned so that Norman was put into an illusion where he thinks he had an affair with Gwen Stacy. And he actually has clone children. And it's this whole thing that's going off at the moment. Um, but the thing that I was sort of very pleased to see from it is the fact that Gwen Stacy of, of 616 no longer has that sort of awful sort of weird flashback retcon that they made 15 years ago on her record anymore. That's now it's gone. Yeah, good for her. Um, that was some not great writing.
1: No, but we have to do go on the record that Gabriel and Sarah, they're still technically Gwen's and Norman's children, just not in the conventional sense, because they were grown in test tubes using Norman and Gwen's DNA.
0: Yeah, yeah, it seems that way. Uh, is the presumption now that due to their advanced aging that they have they've actually just died of old age? Is that the direction it's gone in?
1: Yeah, I think most clones who don't have the proper uh, tech that they came from do suffer from clone degeneration.
0: Yeah, I think that was sort of implied. I don't know if they said that yeah, explicitly as such, but I, that was the impression that some people have come away with was that they just died from old age in the background and that we're just seeing more clones of them now.
1: Yeah, but I think that um seventy four will just it'll just clear up any more answers that we might be having from 73 anyway.
0: Yeah, this run of amazing Spider Man has made a lot of very interesting decisions. I'm not super fond of it, but I have to wonder if maybe it was all worth it to get since past retcon. Um, <laughs> you know, um, we'll, we'll see how the next couple of issues pans out, yeah. um, particularly with the sort of the new stuff around Kindred and that.
1: Anyway, before we get into today's arc, you remember that last week we covered Demon Days Cursed Web. And what's interesting is that the scribe of Demon Days, Zach Davison, he actually interacted with us on Twitter.
0: Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I had uh, wrongly previously thought that he was merely translating Peach Momoko's work, which of course is a is a big job in and of itself. But actually what he is doing is he is taking layouts that she's created. So she's already done all the story and parts of the dialogue that she writes. And he is adapting it into a full scripted comic book, um, as it were. So he is co-writing it really in a way. But I think it says adaptation of English Let me find my copy here. I can say for a certain one second. Yeah, his proper title is English Adaptation in my copy of Demon Days X-Men here. So that's what his job was. And he explained some of the process here. And then, yeah, of course, once he sort of put that sort of traditional comic script together there from Peach's work, they collaborate on that together and then they they put it into the final comic for the lettering. He also clarified a couple of other points.
1: Yeah, he told us what Reina Uyami's etymology really means. Yeah, um so
0: is it literally ghost dark spirits remnant yes um which they say they picked because it sounds cool and it's it's very reminiscent of her the superior code name there I, I suppose yeah at least we got the Yami part right yeah we did apparently there's a lot of nuance to the homophones in Japanese so um, without knowing the nuances of the grammar there it's um yeah no it's, it was nice to have an expert tell us about it there. Um, and another point that he added as well was apparently because we commented quite a bit during our episode there about the gore the Peach Momoko draws and about the, the sort of the sort of the level of detail and violence that it gets because we were quite surprised by it, uh, having known her really from her variant covers, which usually... Uh, Usually don't have much opportunity for Gorin, but apparently before she started working for Marvel, Peach was primarily a horror artist, and uh, she apparently loves drawing eyes flinging out of heads and bodies being chopped up. (laughs) Apparently she's all about that.
1: That explains so much about why Taraji's death was so graphic.
0: Yeah, 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 right. And like, why the first chance that she gets to make a comic, she starts bringing in those elements. And I do think it makes for a very unique style. It very much sits in like that. That sort of violence is very. I think like, there's obviously other violent stuff within Marvel comics, but I think Peach has a unique flair that's very engaging and compelling, and, and makes for a good read. I think. Um, and it was really nice of uh, Zach Davison to clarify those different points for his there. Um, apparently, he listened to the episode, so. Uh, That's really cool, and um, yeah, no, that was was really nice. We're very, very grateful for the clarification there and on our amateur speculation about that comic. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, you know, thank you, Zach Davison. Yes,
0: absolutely. So this week we are doing the Dog Days Are Over arc from the main Spider-Gwen comics run. The last time we were reading sort of the main run of Spider-Gwen comics for the Impossible Year, which is from the sort of the Maguire era. And we looked at a bit at Gwen attempting to balance her lives following spider Gwen. So her current status quo is that uh, she's gone through all the stuff in the Latour run. She's been to prison. She's finished up at prison. She has a public identity on Earth-65. So everybody knows who she is. And there's a lot of tension over that fact. And she's gone and fought in Spider-Geddon. She's sustained some losses and she's kind of down about that. And now she's having to deal with this new criminal organization, which has popped up in her absence while she was imprisoned, run by the Manwolf and the Jackal as well. And uh, the Man-Wolf's gang is not very nice. They bombed one of her band's gigs, causing some deaths, from what I understand. And and it's, you know, that was was very grim. And they fought. Gwen won and sent him to prison. Um, And the sort of the B-plot to all of this is that Gwen's symbiote, which has been bonded to for a long time, Venom 65, has been malfunctioning, giving her headaches, leaving symbiote gummy spiders everywhere. And now the... we're looking at the sort of the new arc following on from all of that. In, in this sort of run, it's almost like a two-parter, I'd say. Uh, it's very much leads directly on from what was happening there. And what we have is a relaunch with the same creative team. And uh, they use a couple of other artists. They use Rosa Campe, they use Iguara, but by and large, it's still um, Maguire, Shawna Maguire, that is Takeshi Maizawa, and Ian Herring is this sort of creative team doing the writing Pencils and colors, respectively. Dog Days Rover is a Hugo-nominated arc. It's up for uh, a Hugo in a couple of months, which we're quite uh, excited about. I mean, it's just nice to have a, a Hugo-nominated arc and go spider comics. But um, yeah,
1: yeah. So, if there's anyone listening who's part of the uh, Hugo voting committee, can you vote for this book?
0: Yes, please, I'm sure the uh, the block of Hugo Academy members are keenly that listen to our episode are keenly paying attention there and will hopefully vote. Um, yeah, so any information about uh, where to buy and where to read, we have a little link with a reading list and um, a little, little bit about where to look for, such so as Marvel Unlimited, as well as links to Comicsology, which has the digital comic, if you wanted to buy it there, if you just wanted to know what it looks like, just a note. A couple of weeks ago when we were doing Impossible Year, we did not read Spider-Gwen Ghost Spider number 10, which is collected with and part of the Impossible Year arc. But because narratively it doesn't really fit with that, it sort of sits apart. It really leads much better into Dog Days are over. So we're looking at that is one thing. We're looking at Spider-Gwen Ghost Spider number 10, and then the relaunch, which is just called Ghost Spider, issues number one to five. That's the six issues we're looking at today. Um, and uh, what we have is a synopsis which gets us all on the same page and summarizes this book but we do recommend you read it first before listening to our thoughts on it and our synopsis here but uh, we'll get into that now right
1: yep so let's begin While beating up Thugs in an alleyway, Gwen notes that her symbiote is still sick, but with Elsa Brock missing, she has to travel somewhere else for help. Gwen uses her necklace that is a ticket to the multiverse to go to Earth-616. After traveling through the portal, Gwen notes that her powers completely fail her for a short period of time. With Jess busy with her baby and Miles in school, Gwen decides to go to Peter Parker for help in her end goal of finding Eddie Brock, hoping that he can give her advice on how to deal with her symbiote.
0: Hesitant to contact the venom of this earth, Peter offers to study Gwen's symbiote himself, leaving Eddie as a plan B option. The two go on a swing through the city together to get food, Gwen noting that eating soothes the symbiote-induced headaches that she has. Peter gives a vague update about his current situation, explaining that he is now a TA at Empire State University after the whole situation with Doc Ock meant that his PhD was technically plagiarized.
1: While the two are debating corn dogs, which Gwen is in favor of, versus hot dogs, which Peter is in favor of, the two are surprised by screaming from the museum nearby and find themselves confronted by the supervillain, Swarm. The monstrous mass of bees has formed itself around a fossilized dinosaur skeleton and started terrorizing the museum visitors, while smaller groups of bees are able to steal from the museum.
0: Noting the example of a corndog, Gwen proposes that they use their webs to wrap Swarm completely as a corndog's meat is wrapped completely, bringing an end to Dino Swarm's threat. Onlookers ask after Gwen's name, so realizing that she has a secret identity here and that she should avoid overlapping with Jessica Drew's codename, Gwen decides on the name Ghost Spider.
1: Gwen decides to enroll at Empire State University on Earth-616, realizing she could attend school like a normal student there and have support from the 616 heroes while she's there. Gwen informs and tries to justify this decision to the Mary Janes, but MJ in particular is displeased, noting that they won't be able to even contact her, let alone spend as much time practicing with Gwen away on another dimension. Gwen decides to leave for her enrollment there and then.
0: At ESU, Peter greets Gwen and goes with her for the meeting with the Dean of Admissions. The Stark Scholarship on Earth-616 applies to interdimensional heroes such as Gwen and will offer her a full ride to ESU.
1: Back on Earth-65, Captain Stacy returns to work at the NYPD, who is frustrated by his precinct throwing him a surprise party, despite his insistence that they shouldn't. He is later confronted by J. Jonah Jameson, angrily demanding that Stacy release his son, the Man-Wolf, currently depowered due to the lunar phase right now, leveraging his position as mayor as well as significant legal backing to make it happen.
0: Gwen and Peter swing around New York, catching up. They briefly dispatch a giant rat that was terrorizing some people before getting to discussing the situation with Gwen symbiote. Peter informs her that it's malnourished and that it needs cellulose-rich food such as kale chips, something which Gwen's junk food-oriented diet rarely accounts for.
1: After Gwen finalizes her enrollment at ESU, unbeknownst to Gwen, it is revealed that Miles Warren, the Jackal of Earth 616 has taken on a new identity as Professor Guarinus. He notes that her enrollment and starts scheming for her still smitten over Gwen-616.
0: Back on Earth-65, Captain Stacy informs Gwen, much to her anger, about the Manwolf's new status as a free man, out of the hands of the law. He informs her that while he has his grievances with the situation, that he'll be fine and tells her to keep going to school on 616.
1: Now incorporating more cellulose into her diet, Gwen's symbiote is sated and has far fewer issues than it had previously, something which Peter monitors with her. Gwen also makes new friends at ESU in Kosei Sato, with whom she gets along well, and Benji Jones, an Australian student with whom she does her media studies homework.
0: Miles Warren 616 is spying on Gwen as much as his position allows, but is hindered by the mutagens he has used on himself. In the time since he was last active, he has transformed himself into a jackal monster, similar to his former costumed appearance, which gives him enhanced speed, strength, and dangerous claws. He has to take additional serums to take on his old human appearance when working at ESU. He you notes know, the only one of his kind, but plans to change that by having Gwen join him.
1: Miles Warren, 65, continues his work on the symbiote spider he had scavenged, working out a way to disable Gwen's symbiote. He is confronted by John Jameson III, who attempts to reassert his position in the organization, but Warren cautions him against his current course of action for fear of further retaliatory action from Ghost Spider or his father, the mayor, finding out more about their operation. Jameson resents Warren as the Manwolf transformation wasn't powerful enough to beat Gwen and tries to physically intimidate him, but Warren doesn't flinch from Jameson's human exterior. Benji
0: has been collaborating with Miles Warren616, particularly in spying on Gwen with the two buttheads. Seeking to further incentivize her, Warren reveals a new mutagen that will be hers if she continues to uphold her end of the bargain, to which she accepts. To aid her in bringing Gwen in, he gives her a temporary dose of it.
1: Gwen and Peter meet after class and discuss the optimistic path that Gwen's life has taken since she started at ESU 616, with her even managing to keep up with band practice regularly. She morphs into her costume look and heads home through a portal, all witnessed by a transformed Benji. Warren's new mutagen for Benji used DNA obtained during the Dinosaur Museum attack to give her the appearance and the abilities of a monstrous prehistoric predator. However, The serum wears off before she can follow Gwen through the portal and she loses the trail completely.
0: On Earth-65, Gwen stops a bodega robbery, where in a rare role reversal, the bodega bandit is the victim of the crime. Gwen roughly takes down the goons holding the place up. She vouches for the bandit with the police and informs them that his hamster is missing. This event triggers a crisis of confidence for Gwen who considers that spending so much time away could be resulting in more crimes like this happening. She goes on a particularly intense patrol through the city that night, helping as many people as possible.
1: On 616, Benji reports back to Warren, who is intrigued as to Gwen's interdimensional activities. Unhappy with her failure to procure Gwen, he shows her the consequences for failure, but her fate remains unknown. Gwen and
0: Kosei note Benji's disappearance, but they write it off as Benji taking a mental health day. Without Benji to study with, Gwen travels back to Earth 65, unaware of Miles Warren watching from afar and noting her method of transportation.
1: On Earth 65, Gwen stops a hostage situation at the hospital where members of Manwolf's gang ran into difficulty with the police when trying to extract a fellow member in the ER. Using stealth, Gwen dispatches them with extreme prejudice. At band practice, MJ accuses Gwen
0: of falling behind the beat, whereas Gwen accuses her of rushing it. Gwen decides to call it a day, and MJ snaps at her before regaining her temper, much to Glory and Gwen's surprise.
1: When Gwen travels home from 616 the next day, Jackal, fully transformed and knowing her route now, stalks again from afar and stealthily follows Gwen through the portal.
0: Gwen remains unaware and swings off before Jackal falls through the portal. Fascinated by Gwen's celebrity status, he searches the streets for her, accidentally ending up in an altercation with Manwolf Goons, with whom he agrees to go with peacefully. Intrigued by his strange appearance, they take him back to their new lair, where they show him to Miles Warren, 65.
1: With a mutual interest in capturing Gwen, the two jackals ally with each other and set out a plan to take her down using 65's new symbiote neutralizing formula. By having the gang's members do another bodega holdup near her patrol route, the jackals lay their trap. Gwen goes to stop the robbery and saves the bystanders, but the goons throw out a gas bomb form of the symbiote neutralizing formula and it knocks Gwen out. They kill the witnesses and leave with the unconscious Gwen.
0: The jackals restrain Gwen to a gurney. Warren 616 attempts to use Gwen's necklace that lets her travel the multiverse, but she laughs as it only works for her. He prepositions Gwen, but she rejects him, causing Warren 65 to burst out laughing at 616's feeble attempt to get a date. Much to Gwen's horror, Jackal616 kills Jackal65 in a moment of anger, seeing as he had outlived his usefulness.
1: Having used Gwen's live location on social media, the Mary Janes track her to the gang's location and barge in. Furious now, and somewhat recovered from the symbiote sedative, Gwen breaks out of her restraints. Jackal rushes at them, taking Mary Jane hostage, but she breaks out of the hold of her self-defense training. Gwen subsequently webs him up. While Gwen explains the situation to the band, Jackal uses the distraction to break free.
0: Ghost Spider sets off in pursuit, but Jackal finds more members of the Man-Wolf's gang and requests that he finally get to meet their leader.
1: And this has been the Hugo-nominated "Dog Days Are Over." Yeah,
0: um, yeah, it sort of ends on a two-B continued at the end there, but um, as we'll see, we'll, we'll sort of get into more of sort of what got dropped from this, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. So, before we move on to our thoughts, you know, as always, we like to tally up our total amount of times that Gwen cusses in any arc or appearance. The Stacey swear jar. So, yes. she only does it once in this arc. In number five, when she was telling the jackal to stay the fuck away from her, referring to MJ when he was about to take her hostage, that was the only time she cussed.
0: Yeah, I like the uh, show of display on behalf of MJ there, like... That's what that's what drove Gwen to swear was was her um, need to protect MJ. It was a nice moment
1: because it's even complete with three exclamation marks.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's an interesting moment there actually, like because Gwen doesn't actually get to make the decision there, but I imagine she would for sort of MJ's sake. But MJ sort of dealt with it, so it was was all right in the end, I guess.
1: Yeah. So that would bring the uh, total of the Stacy swear jar as of this arc to forty one dollars. Is that where it's going to stay for a while, it seems like? Oh, until in a few weeks when we see the return of the Jar. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: um, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. So let's get into this arc. There's a lot of um, interesting stuff in this one. It is very much a continuation of Impossible Year. It sort of all sort of threads in, even with the big relaunch, even with what it feels like, like two intro issues at once. Like Spider-Gwen Ghost Spider number 10 feels like an intro issue to Spider-Gwen Comics. And then Ghost Spider number one hits, and that feels like an intro to Spider-Man comics again. It's a lot of, like, starter issues, I feel like. It keep, feels like the, the comic keeps starting, and then it, like... But, uh, yeah, it's um even with all of that, this is very much the, the arcs being used here are all leading on from uh, Impossible Year, uh, and this sort of post- prison status quo that gwen is stuck in
1: it's because you know when you think about it the entirety of spider gwen ghost spider is sort of the transition period of her officially adopting the ghost spider nickname yeah
0: it is and um it is really and and i I, at the moment when it actually comes at the end of um spider gwen ghost spider is very much um it's kind of a small moment really it's only one panel one or two panels long yeah i think it's it makes sense. I feel like we can properly get into it here, like the reasoning behind and the sort of the case against maybe having Spider gwen change her name to Ghost Spider. Really, yeah,
1: because uh, as we previously mentioned a couple of weeks ago during Spider Gwen, you know, she was partially inspired by Miles to take on the Ghost Spider name, but she didn't really stick with it until issue number ten.
0: Yeah, that sort of feels like it sort of just happened parallel. Like they could have not had that moment, and I think this would have still that would have still worked in that moment. It still would have made sense.
1: Yeah, it's really more of a self-branding thing, because although that the uh, meta reason is just to synergize it with Marvel Rising, where she is called Ghost Spider right off the bat, Mm -hmm. they had to come up with a different reason in-universe.
0: Yeah, it is. I think think it would have been a lot better if Gwen was always Ghost Spider. I think that's always the case when you have a rebranding thing, like retroactively... It would have always been better if it were the, the new branding, but the whole time. Um, but that's just sort of the way it is. I think one of the factors here that comes up is um, is the proximity to Jessica Drew being also called Spider-Woman. Like, that's a big factor here.
1: Yeah, she said that Jess would kill her if she borrowed her name. Although, at this point in the Marvel Universe, there's already um, three Spider-Men and two Hawkeyes. It couldn't make the case for two Spider-Women.
0: Well, the way I see it is, like, the Spider-Men share their mantle because they know each other, they all started because of each other, They, you know, like, they're connected, right? The same is true of the Hawkeyes, I think. But Spider-Woman, as Jessica Drew's brand is, is quite established, like, there's no other Spider-Woman. The other spider Women weren't really around for when Jessica Drew took the mantle back in the noughties. And by and large, it's remained her thing. Now, Gwen didn't become a superhero because of the spider woman mantle like she's not connected like it it, she it happened parallel right it happened on a different earth when you read edge of spider verse number two it calls the comic spider woman like it has a gutter text which says previously in spider woman like with the idea that that on that earth it would make sense for it to be called spider woman of course i think Yeah. Right. Like if Gwen was given the option, she would probably stay calling Spider-Woman, but she comes to this other earth where there's already a Spider-Woman that she is not connected to. Like she might work with her occasionally, but they don't share a mantle or a role or inspiration or imagery or rogues gallery, like all of these other people who share mantles. So like, I think from that perspective, she's not a legacy character. She's not a legacy mantle for Jessica Drew, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I I hear that argument and I think it makes sense, especially if like they couldn't call this comic Spider-Woman, which is awkward to have a comic where you have a different editorial name for a character and a different name in the interior pages, which I think is why they did make Spider-Gwen a name for her at the end of the first Spider-Gwen run, because they just wanted to bring it in line with the name of the book.
1: And then as a witness at the beginning of the Maguire run, you can see that Gwen's already grown tired of being called Spider-Gwen
0: yeah like and and there's even hints of it in the Latour, and that she's not super comfortable with it like i know she like closes out with that last panel liking it but there's a couple of panels even within that same issue where she's like she's not super comfortable with the spider gwen name and i think just generally speaking if like you wanted to adapt this character and the name was spider gwen you you wouldn't like you'd still have to come up with a new name for her like like in in just generally in terms of branding you you have all these different names floating about spider gwen wouldn't be able to remain consistent across all these different appearances. So again, I think like there's an onus on them to sort of find a new name for her that's um that's perhaps more appropriate, if that makes sense.
1: And you know, the second point that she makes is that she had that whole mantra about Death loves Gwen Stacy. She's like, why not just embrace that?
0: Yeah, like I think a lot of a lot of what makes Ghost Spider, I think, unique to Gwen is that it does reflect that narrative acknowledgement that this is the ghost of Gwen 616. For the reader, we are reading a character that was brought back in this way uh, from a character that previously died. And that death toll going around. It's something we've spoken about over quite a few episodes that she has this sort of tragedy and trauma constantly looming over her in her backstory, in her ongoing comics. She constantly has to deal with death and the consequences that it spells for people. And in that sense, Gwen is a ghost spider, which I've always found very interesting. And that, I, think, I think that reflects her agency there a bit better.
1: And then, you know, whenever they adapt her into media where they call her ghost spider from rising onwards, they just say it's just because of her costume or it just sounds cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it does. It's like they don't need to change the costume, which I would argue is probably the, the most important thing to preserve from the original Spider-Gwen comics, or at least the sort of the general look where you have this character who is, who is all black, except for this sort of this white spot on top of the, on the top half of the costume. And it does sort of stand out. And with the hood, it does look ghostly. Like it does look, it does have that sort of phantom look to the character. And it fits with that in a way, which um, I think is, it's good. It works.
1: You brought up that point about where she's practically, we're reading her as the ghost of uh, Gwen Stacy. You know, her enrollment at Empire State University kind of had me thinking if people were really going to bat an eye to how Gwen looks so similar to the other Gwen Stacy who died years ago off the bridge, because when this was first announced, I thought that Gwen was just going to use a pseudonym to avoid being compared to Gwen. Gwen. I thought she was just going to call herself Gwanda to avoid detection.
0: Yeah, that would have been that would have been funny, I think. It is interesting that Gwen doesn't really use much in the way of identity protection because of course she does wear the face of somebody who did sort of tragically and quite publicly die earlier in this universe and she does keep that name and it is a problem for her like it's something the jackal notices i hope it's something maybe they've addressed or they could address perhaps with more development of her time on 616 because obviously this, this problem comes up but they don't really get much chance to go back to it down the line i could see them sort of maybe being like okay maybe maybe we can put a different name down on your legal documents so people can't or well, like use a different name on social media and stuff because yeah it's it would be I, I mean it's in the same city where gwen 616 died i mean i appreciate like canonically it must have happened what like eight something years ago like the generation of like the her peers wouldn't perhaps be aware of it but there'll be some people around in new york who would be in like peter's age so it's, it's strange
1: but the Dean of Admissions was aware that Gwen was from another dimension. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I think it makes sense
0: for the Dean of Admissions, like for faculty to know maybe. So a couple of other points around Ghost Spider name change that I wanted to touch on was, um, I feel like they could use the power set more where she's able to camouflage. Like that thing that she's able to do in Spider-Gwen number 26, where she's definitely able to do the Predator mode thing that Miles Morales is able to do.
1: I guess that the uh, camouflage isn't really the first thing that comes to her mind when she uses the symbiote. She's just like punch first, ask questions later.
0: Yeah, yeah, but absolutely, when they do stealth stuff, like if they have that, like I feel that in and of itself justifies her to the name much more than much more than like at least half of Spider people. Obviously, people like Miles Morales could probably fit under that sort of that vibe, but I think Gwen fits it in that sense as well. Like they could use that to justify it a bit more. There were a couple of points against that I wanted to sort of mention. There is another ghost spider prior to this. There's that, um, there's that alternate universe where Peter Parker gets the spirit of vengeance.
1: Yeah, technically that was called Ghost Spider just because Ghost Rider plus Spider-Man equals the Ghost Spider. But they recently renamed him into the Spirit Spider just because it kind of makes more sense that way a spider person with the spirit of vengeance.
0: Right, right, exactly. And there's even, um, there's a ghost spider in the ultimate Spider-Man cartoon, that group of LMD spider people they have. There's a ghost spider there as well. So like, it's not that this is like um, like a brand new name. It's one that people have thought of a couple of times at least. But I would argue that Gwen, just by virtue of having it now, uh, like the longer she has it and the more comics that she has it, will overwrite the older stuff. Like, she'll be able to supersede these minor characters that only had a couple appearances, just by virtue of having it, I think. But to that point, it does sound very close to Ghost Rider. It sounds so, so close to Ghost Rider. Like, it's not good, I don't think, to have a Ghost Rider and a Ghost Spider.
1: No, all we need is just Gwen riding a motorcycle of chains being on fire. I need to see that.
0: Yeah, um, but but yeah, no, I, um, yeah, no, I do think that like if you're a Ghost Rider fan and you've been enjoying this character for a long time, you know, you read Ghost Ghost Rider comics and then and then you look over and you see there's something called Ghost Spider, uh, it's got absolutely nothing to do with the, this character. Like, you know, I, I must wonder what you think, um, really. But yeah, I do think that that is unfortunate. Like, I think just off the back of that, they maybe should have thought of different names. Also, the other thing is that just rebranding a character is going to hurt it. It's always going to hurt, and I, I do think that. That since this rebranding, not necessarily because of, but Gwen has happened to have suffered a bit more, I think, in terms of her popularity and particularly the sales of her comics just aren't what they were when she was called Spider-Gwen. And that's not me saying that she should go back to being called Spider-Gwen. I just think that maybe they've got to stick for a while with a name change to make it really work to sort of avoid it hurting the character. And I'm at the point now where if they change her name again, it's just going to be bad It's just going to be really bad for the carrots, so they should just stick with this.
1: But I think I doubt it because she's been known as Ghost Spider since, I think, 2017. That's when Marvel Rising was first announced. They rebranded her as Ghost Spider fall of 2017. So that would mean that she's been Ghost Spider technically for four years now because 2014 to 2017, that's just three years
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think Marvel Rising has the same place in the comic reader's consciousness. Like, this name change comes, what, in, like, 2019? Like, in the comic itself, like, properly with the rename and the relaunch, it's 2019. So I think that, like, while it's definitely a branding thing Marvel had been wanting to do for, like, a couple of years before that point, in terms of the character here specifically that we as comic readers experience and talk about, Really, that, that the change is much more recent. Like, it took them a while to sort of roll it out across the board, including the comics, as well as stuff like Marvel Rising and adjacent properties. Because
1: every subsequent thing that Ghost Spider is used for now, that's her name now. You know, just look at the uh, Marvel Spider Man cartoon, Spidey and his amazing friends, all of the video games now. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. And I, I think now that sort of, they've got a good branding push behind it they'll make it stick because it's marvel because they have all these different properties they'll make it stick over time which i'm glad for
1: is that all we have to say about her name change um i
0: i mean i know personally i've warmed to it i like the name i think it's good i think that gwen needs a unique name that captures the spirit of her character and i do not think that spider gwen and spider woman really got at that i do prefer this name change and um You know, I'll I know I'll, I still use the name Spider Gwen. I still think that's pretty. Like, I think it would be strange to drop that altogether. But I do think over time we'll, we'll see Ghost Spider become the norm, and people think of the character that way. I think, especially if Into the Spider Verse Two comes out and they reflect the name change here, that we will see a big shift, perhaps in in the public perception of Gwen and her mantle here. Yeah.
1: I'm thinking, you know, just wait till they decide to come out with the TV show. I bet the dollars to donuts that they're going to just call the show Ghost Spider.
0: I hope so. I really do. I hope that they stick with this and like whatever the new title of a comic is called, I, I hope they find a way to incorporate the Ghost Spider name, even if they, they the radioactive Ghost Spider or haunting. I've seen haunting Ghost Spider a few times, which I think is great. That's a spectacular adjective to use with it. Anything to that effect.
1: Or even Gwen Stacy colon Ghost Spider.
0: Yeah, like what they're doing with Miles's comic. Um, I think anything to that effect. In fact, putting Gwen, I think having Gwen's name in there just elevates the book a bit. So that maybe they could, in the same way that Spider Gwen elevated Gwen's Spider Gwen comics originally, having Gwen in the name there sort of put eyes on it. Maybe having a Gwen Stacy Ghost Spider or a Ghost Spider Gwen Stacy book would do the same thing for the character.
1: I think that if they really wanted to uh, retitle a little bit, I think they should just stick with the Gwen Stacy ghost spider just to make her sell.
0: Yeah, I think that's just maybe the way to go. Cause I, and, and a big thing, I think, especially with this sort of era of Spider-Gwen comics, ghost spider comics rather, is that the sales are really waning a lot. Because they were waning a lot towards the Latour run and they were they were sort of boosted by the relaunches here. But at this point, it's not spectacular. So it's um something to consider, I think. And the branding, I do, I do think it, it does play some amount of a role in it all.
1: Did you just make a spider pun by saying spectacular?
0: I might have a little bit, maybe.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What else do we have her in the notes? Should we circle back to why her symbiote has been malfunctioning?
0: Yeah, so like they've had this B plot, and it really felt like you know, you read Impossible Year, and they're like, you know, it's like when you watch anything or you read anything, and somebody says, oh, I've got a cough. Like, you know, it's something serious, right? Like, you know, it's going to be, it's never just a cough. Right. It turned out to be this big thing that they've got to fix. And it's just that, you know, it could become whatever manner of terrible illnesses, as one expects from sort of a fictional media thing. You expect the drama of it. And so throughout Impossible Year, they keep dropping this thing where Gwen is having issues with her symbiote. Right. Like and she's having she's having like the symbiote equivalent of the flu. Right. And you're expecting this this big payoff where either you get to meet Eddie Brock Venom or we get to see Gwen again or we get we get something from it but actually it turns out Gwen's been having too many corn dogs and needs to eat more kale chips it literally was just a cough right <laughs> she just needed to just needed to change her diet up a bit. And I think like that's not bad, <laughs> but uh, the subversion of expectations there is, is quite funny.
1: I really thought it was going to be something similar to Eddie Brock's toxic shock syndrome at the beginning of the Costa run where he just kept splintering and splintering and he didn't know why until he got cured of the anti-venom symbiote serum. But no, it's just because Gwen symbiote hasn't been eating enough.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and it's like I think it's interesting though that they flesh that out because um I do think that with like six one six symbiotes it does feel like they're this very big like they have a lot of volume, right? But they're very big, they they lash out, they do all these crazy things and in return that whether well, they feed off brain juices or chocolate or people's <laughs> heads or whatever. Brain juice? Yeah, they have that thing where it's like um they feed off
1: like that really long word fennel, ethyl let me uh I don't know. <laughs> That word, brain juice. So
0: um, they feed off that in people's brains and they don't need to eat a lot. And for me, that seems kind of cheap, right? Like you have this all-powerful thing that needs hosts to live except it's really not that big of a deal. It's kind of chill about it. And, and I've always thought it's a bit of a cop-out. Like if in reality something like that existed, you'd have to eat loads to sustain it, right? And I like the clarification here because obviously when Gwen was in the Gwenna right, and she was using the symbiote loads, right? She was eating loads, right? She was eating huge amounts of food. They show it. And it's like her appetite is completely out of control. And then immediately following that, um, she goes to prison where she barely uses her symbiote for like, like a year, right? She doesn't use a symbiote. Now she's out of prison and she's using it again, but she's obviously, she's not going out and robbing places for burgers and stuff now. Like she's eating a normal amount and she's like, I'm having headaches. I'm having all these issues. I'm having these problems. And I like the idea that the symbiote has to have like this right kind of nutrition like cellulose which is like not something that humans can really digest anyway which i thought is quite interesting that it needs that to survive like it needs fiber and stuff that would make sense i think i think it's a really interesting touch and i like that expansion of earth 65 symbiote law that it needs to feed like that i feel like there's a very nuanced take on how they function and the kind of withdrawal effects that they have on people that I think it benefits from there. And this becomes a thing here on out now, you see Gwen talking about when she eats in terms of, you know, is it, is it good for the symbiote as well? Which I thought was quite interesting. I thought it was a quite um, a fun take on the sort of the logistics of being a superhero, which I think comes through very strong during these two arcs is sort of the day to day, you know, how do you fit in superhero stuff with normal stuff like how does it affect your school life how does it affect your diet how does it affect the amount of time you have to spend with your friends and all of that sort of stuff and and i feel like it creates a very relatable feel to a lot of this because these are all things we have to worry about as you know normal everyday people and it comes through very strong in this arc and even though it doesn't turn into this big whole thing with a big symbiote standoff Although we do eventually get that, uh, like down the line in these comics, it does feel like, you know, it's something, you know, it would be something you worry about.
1: You know, people do have coughs, right? And sometimes they are just coughs. <laughs> um, one of those things. When I was first reading Impossible Year, I thought, you know, were these symbiote spiders going to be serving some sort of origin story to a certain psychotic symbiote? Just because, you know, in 616, the Carnage symbiote came to be because it The Venom symbiote splintered, and I was thinking, is this going to be a carnage origin story? You know, I hear that. But yeah, and and, I know,
0: I I do find the, the way they sort of do use them that way when they do do carnage, though, right? Like, they go in that sort of direction.
1: I did find it funny that even though the symbiote still has to eat all of that healthy stuff, Gwen's still eating her junk food. Remember, she promised the symbiote that if they defeat Swarm, she can give it all the corn dogs that she wants.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think at that point she quite understood the nutritional needs of the symbiote. Until Ghost Spider number one, she's a bit in the dark. And she knows that when she eats, it sort of it sort of soothes it a bit. So I think that's why she makes that promise. But she doesn't know at that point it's about the cellulose specifically um, that she needs to, to give it. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, she still eats her cellulose-rich uh, food, but yeah, she still gets to have her corn dogs at the same time. Although I do have to say... That when she and Peter were arguing about what's the better dog, <laughs> corn dogs or hot dogs, I'd just like to say that um, even though I do like corn dogs, I think I have to give the win to hot dogs because you can literally put anything on a hot dog because you, know, you have the bun as the vessel. You can put cheese, onions, chili relish on it right and then you know with the corn dog you're kind of limited because you're holding it with a stick if you try to put chili on the corn dog with a stick it's just gonna fall you're gonna have to eat it sideways that would be fun and hope that nothing falls
0: right yeah i think um yeah i like hot dogs i've had hot dogs before but i'm afraid i can't i can't speak to um this debate very well because we just don't have corn dogs in the uk they're not a thing and um, I can only think of one instance of a place which served corn dogs and it shut down pretty quick. And yeah, I've never seen them anywhere else. You don't have them at supermarkets or grocery stores in like packaging. We don't have corn dog s- stalls. And even though my favorite character is Spider-Going-Go-Spider, I've never had the opportunity to actually know what a corn dog tastes like. It's um, my great
1: shame. <laughs> I keep telling them that all they need to do to make a corn dog is just cornmeal batter a hot dog, a stick, and some hot oil.
0: Yeah, no, I I might try that just to say that I've done it and just to know what it tastes like. Um, I'd like that. Um, one of the things that does come through to me, though, that seems a bit unfair to compare corn dogs to is that hot dogs are very much part of a greater sandwich. Like you say, you can do all these other things. It's very versatile. But corn dogs are much more bare bones. And that's that's just by virtue of like these completely different paradigms. You comparing a sandwich with a, with a sort of way of serving a piece of meat that's much more minimal like it's you know it's hard to, to get the that you know I think I think corn dogs are starting out on the back foot there maybe in my opinion
1: <laughs> but then there's this whole discourse about whether hot dogs are a sandwich and even though it's technically a piece of meat between two breads I say it's not a sandwich because just because of the way it looks right
0: I mean I hear that and and I and I realize there's some nuance to that, but but in the sense that you can you can like you say you can put all these other things with it, and the bread is also able to contain the fillings as a sandwich would. It's, it's able to contain all those fillings um, within the context of the bread there, which sort of gives the hot dog the advantage I think that, that you spoke to.
1: But um, you don't eat a hot dog with two hands, so um, don't. I mean, sometimes, right? Like depends on how big the hot dog would be. Yeah, I mean, if you've got a, like
0: if you've got all that stuff you mentioned on it, I, I think I'd struggle. I mean, I mean, Gwen here does it has a hot dog in each hand, so maybe um, <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe we should maybe we should aspire to that.
1: Because um, remember, during uh when she met Gwen six one seven, when the two got hot dogs, Gwen was holding two hot dogs with both of her hands, one in each hand, anyway
0: right right yeah like it seems that she's she's got that going on yeah she has that in spider going ghost spider number number 10 she carries both hot dogs in her hands while she web slings and, and he even comments on it so you know she's she's clearly thought this through she's given it consideration
1: but i feel like that's probably enough corn dogs and hot dogs talk for one day it's almost dinner time where i'm at okay that's fair that's fair yeah um But the one point that does seem to be an elephant in the room is that Gwen didn't seem to recognize who Miles Warren was when she bumped into him, even though she and Kane were involved in clone conspiracy. Yeah, actually, I thought this was quite a confusing thing, because
0: obviously, like, he's got this secret identity, but he's working in a school with Kurt Connors and Peter Parker, who have both definitely met him. Also, a number of people who would be familiar with a supervillain like the Jackal presumably also live or work or study around ESU. And he's going around with his same face, his same look, his same facial hair, his same glasses. How does that work?
1: I feel like that maybe in Gwen's case in Clone Conspiracy, she didn't get a good enough look at Warren's face, or she just probably forgot. But probably for a Jackal parading around at ESU... Maybe, uh, I guess you could say in-universe, I don't know, uh, facial reconstruction surgery or something.
0: My headcanon is that the serum he uses to revert back to human form is also giving him a, a different facial structure. Like you say, it's making him look physically different to the point where all of these people can't recognize him. And he's able to sort of, you know, be Professor how yeah. however you pronounce that. <laughs>
1: I, I think, a Guar in this, but I feel like this is a good transition to the Jackal.
0: Yeah, uh, so Jackal 616 is a very old Spider-Man character, right? You know, this is the classic one from, like, those old clone comics. But what we see, uh, the way Sean and Maguire writes him, is a pivot from being very, very obsessed with cloning and Gwen Stacy to being very obsessed with mutagens and transformations and gwen stacy so this is is this his sort of first big appearance after clone conspiracy is that what i be right in saying that
1: yeah because the jacqueline clone conspiracy was ben riley and miles warren was just merely his assistant because ben also cloned miles and then tricked him into thinking that he was a clone when really he was just a real miles warren all along he just went along with ben's plan
0: yeah, yeah. He he got him into a situation where he was he was sort of compelled to serve uh, this person that he didn't really like who was sort of using his identity. But there's this sort of bit at the end where um, actually Ben and and Miles actually have a fight in Ben's burning home it is this whole thing. Anyway, sort of it's where, um, miles Warren reasserts himself as the, tr- as the original jackal. And he's wearing the outfit, the green sort of Yoda looking outfit. Right. And then that, I think that was that. And then it leads on from that, right. The disappearance of the jackal is him having, picking up the pieces after, his life was completely messed up during the clone conspiracy, thanks to Ben Riley. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, and I find it more practical that you know, he's using Jackal DNA to transform into his namesake rather than running around in a Halloween costume like a furry. Yeah.
0: Um I think I think it makes more sense because that costume always looked real, the way they drew it. They drew it as if he were an actual monster. And um I think it makes sense this way. I like this pivot though, because cloning is is really strange and the science of it is is really weird and it presents all these philosophical questions. That really the kinds of comics that deal with cloning don't really properly reconcile themselves with. So I prefer him being all about transforming people into monsters. I find that much more interesting. It looks better as well. And it means that we get characters like Manwolf65 and whatever was going on with Benji Jones. You know, we have, I feel, what is a more compelling sort of set of motivations. And also it makes more sense because obviously if Gwen is still alive, why would he want to clone her? Um, His motivation instead is to convert her right? He's trying to mutate her to be a a fellow jackal, right? Like that's his, like like he hints at it a few times, right? He's like, I am the only one of my kind, but with Gwen Stacy, not for long. And it's this whole thing. And, um, he, he sort of, um, I think that's his aspiration here. And he didn't really think it through because obviously she could just say no and then beat him up, which is what she does. And I presume that there was a lead on from that, right? Like they were
1: going to have him come back and try it again. That was even Uncle Raymond's Endgame in the uh, Marvel Spider-Man cartoon. He wanted to turn Gwen into a fellow Jackal too. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, That cartoon, I thought, sort of uses a similar premise for the Jackal, where he is very obsessed with Gwen for different reasons that are less creepy, but still creepy.
1: Um, uh, Yeah, that's the one constant for all Miles Warren they're all creepy. Oh yeah, he's a really unpleasant character. And in fact,
0: Jackal 65 points out how creepy Jackal 616 is in his pursuit of Gwen. But he yeah, but yeah, like like in the Marvel Spider-Man cartoon, he has this thing where he's transformed himself into this jackal monster and he wants to transform other people, particularly Gwen, into jackal monsters. Um, and that's his whole thing and I like that pivot I think it's interesting I think it shows an interesting sort of evolution of his character because obviously he, he probably would be pretty sick of clones at this point anyway I probably doesn't want to have a look at a clone again
1: but if he were to relapse into his old ways I'm calling it the the next clone that he makes is going to be called Gwanda right that's we need a Gwanda
0: reference I think If anything, just to vindicate you, rather, after all these years of speculating where they're going to fit Gwanda in, they should have a Gwanda somewhere.
1: Yeah, but, you know, him turning people into uh, freaky animal humanoids like him, Mm. that's leaning more towards horror territory. Oh, this this is the Chapman agenda. Yep, this is villain number two of four that's uh, become horror-themed for Gwen. And, yeah, because, well, for one thing, He's creepy with a capital K. I do mean K. Yeah, he's um he has a couple of a couple of panels. I think
0: uh, Iguara did a couple of pages in in number five where he's sort of he's like suspended in an alleyway over that group of muggers and that person who's getting mugged and he's silhouetted with his eyes glowing. And I thought, you know, this villain is legitimately intimidating. Like he's quite physically intimidating character and i think he could fit quite well as a horror type villain monster very well i think uh you know he'd be very interesting i'd I'd, I'd be interested to see him done like that because he's just you know he's not a good dude and he's a creepy character Um so it works thematically i think as well there but um Clay McLeod Chapman one day could use Jackal six one six on Earth sixty five in a Spider Gwen comic in a creepy horror way. Who knows?
1: Yeah, and I'll be mentioning the other two villains who fit into the horror category in a couple of weeks when we get to that. Nice one, right? Of course. Um, yeah, <laughs> but that- let's talk about one of uh, Jackal's persistent nemesis, Peter Parker.
0: Yeah, I like him in this arc. I mean, I'm kind of sad that they're not using Miles Morales or Jessica Drew in these comics, but I thought the way they use Peter Parker is this nice, friendly teaching assistant who's mentoring Gwen and helping her with a symbiote And is like legitimately concerned for her and then sort of doesn't really get younger people that well because he's getting older now. I thought that was all very, very nice character relations. I wish he was written like that all the time. Like when you read Amazing Spider-Man comics, he is not like that. I wish he was. Yeah, he's nice. I like him. He's good in this.
1: Except for the fact that he denied one the chance to meet Eddie Brock. That meeting should have happened.
0: Yeah, I've seen quite a lot of venom fans passing these panels around right where pete just shoots the idea down and and there's some unfair i I will admit it unfair right things said about eddie brock because he isn't really a spider hunting villain anymore i do understand that pete would be hesitant anyway like i can't imagine him ever like willingly offering up people to Eddie Brock after their history together. I don't think that would be right. The amount of trauma he got put through by Eddie.
1: But I feel like if I have my timelines correctly, uh, he probably couldn't have gotten Eddie anyway because when was this 2018 to 2019? I think that's when the abyss was happening.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see it, but you'd have a hard time working Gwen into Eddie Brock's status quo where he is very much preoccupied with one thing after another a lot. As much as I would like to see that meeting. I hope they do get that at some point in the future. I was hoping it might happen at some point in King of Black, but I guess we'll see.
1: Yeah, because, you know, Eddie could be, you know, the mentor that shows Gwen the rope, since technically Gwen's considered the noob, because she's the only one out of all of the symbiote hosts who's been bonded the shortest.
0: Yeah, no, I think that would be be a nice paradigm to explore. Yeah, uh, I thought it was good, and... Um, like, an interesting use of the Peter Parker status quo, established by Amazing Spider-Man, but not used very much in Amazing Spider-Man. So, one of the one of those things. And I like that he's working at ESU, so he's there to, like, Gwen can just see him after class and stuff. I thought that was fun. One of the things they do make very clear in this is that, like, there is an age gap there. <laughs> uh, I do feel like it should be noted, like, that Gwen is sort of the age that the original, like, Gwen 616 died. Right, like she's nineteen, yeah. twenty, whatever. I
1: think she's 20 right now just because of her year in prison. And then right. Peter just had his 29th birthday in an annual. So that kind of checks out.
0: Right, so we're, we're talking about like an eight-year age gap then at this point. So the idea that like like a lot of people really want to pair these characters together. And, and there are some iterations where this would work, such as the Marvel Spider-Man cartoon where they are the same age. But and I kind of emphasize this enough. There is an eight-year age gap between them. And one of them is twenty. One of them is twenty-eight. Like it would be a big generational leap to make that. And I think the reason that Gwen mentions that it's icky so often is just to drive that home for the reader that this is an entirely it's a platonic friendship between her. Uh, and there's also a superior dynamic where he mentors her, but it's it's uh, it, you know it's all platonic. It's, uh, it's there's no romantic tension between Gwen Stacy '65 and any Peter Parker in the multiverse at all and that that should be driven home i think to the reader <laughs> and
1: you gotta remember that you know peter's with mj and i don't think gwen can bring herself to a date the person who has the face of her dead best friend
0: yeah and bearing in mind that peter 65 never was a romantic interest for gwen 65 that you know it would just ne- it would be really unfun not a good ship we do not ship. Um, or at least I don't ship. No. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. well,
1: not this version. If they were like the same age, it's gonna be like, okay, fine.
0: Yeah, it would it would feel quite forced at this point. I do feel like, yeah, I don't know, one of those things. I I don't, I don't think they should peg Gwen sixty five off with with any Peter Parkies. I don't think that would be a good idea. So we've got uh, the Mary Jeans to talk about. They're in this.
1: Yep. A uh, little bit. And you know, as always, MJ is angry at Gwen for putting herself first rather than the band. Yeah, and and it's like, and the
0: thing is, like, there is a genuine amount of concern. Like, this person, like, and this this comes up for Gwen. Like, she's noted it in the past that if she leaves Earth sixty five for the multiverse and she dies, who would tell her family? And at this point, with the multiverse the way it is, there isn't anyone who could. Who could? I mean, I mean, I presume people on earth 616 would find a way but like that idea of them being separated where they can't even call is something that that mj raises and it's this whole thing and i get that like that's a worrying thing and i think a lot of mj's anger like at gwen doing stuff like superhero stuff because it's usually superhero stuff and multiverse stuff isn't like just a jealousy for gwen having powers it is a legitimate concern for gwen's safety that she's feeling a lot of anger about and externalizing in a sort of non-constructive way um, at least that's my interpretation of it, because the other interpretation is like that MJ is just very, very, very angry and takes it out on Gwen a lot, which I think would be unfair.
1: Even um, at the uh, end of the Jackal ordeal, MJ reiterates, I think the line is, I told you I didn't like you going to school in another dimension. Yeah. And and like, yeah, MJ is vindicated
0: a little bit by the narrative here because they have this whole thing where, where MJ is justified in her concern for Gwen. And MJ's, like, needing Gwen to be at band practice is ultimately a safety thing for Gwen. It means that she's checking in. If she's been kidnapped um, and she's not turned to band practice, then that means that something must have gone wrong, right?
1: Because she uh, resorted to using the real-time sharing location.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they're all on Snapchat or something. I find it funny that Gwen's like, don't use it like MJ's just hacking into her phone like let's that's the kind of thing you could leave on on your phone like you can just turn that off if you don't want people to use it but i think i think Gwen was maybe just frustrated that like MJ put herself in harm's way to go look at what what Gwen was doing which I think is like, it's interesting really because MJ bursts in and it seems like she's going to be this massive hindrance for going around. She's coming in, like, where are you at, bad practice? And then gets kidnapped, well, I kidnapped, like, restrained, taken hostage, whatever, by Jackal. And you think, oh my days, can't believe you've done this, MJ. I can't believe you've just made the situation 10 times worse. And then she proceeds to just elbow him to the stomach and fully free herself an escape and leave him vulnerable for Gwen and it's like oh yeah you forget that MJ's really good at self-defense because the only other time this has come up she absolutely KO'd a guy back out in the Spider-Gwen run and I like this idea that MJ-65 is actually quite a formidable fighter and it just doesn't come
1: up very often um (laughs) But we gotta give her props that she's attempting to control her anger. Yeah, and and it is something which comes up. I like that they do have a little bit of an arc going
0: on here where MJ is aware that this anger that she's feeling is 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 not fun and it's, it's making everybody unhappy and she's trying to get on top of it and and it's really the only time they actually use glory is if i had to sort of pat mj on the back and say yes please don't get angry you're doing great i really do wish that like at this point glory and betty were getting a bit more use because it sort of feels like gwen butts heads with the mary janes because it's literally just mj speaking getting angry and the other two just sort of sitting there and letting it all happen
1: but they did you know help mj find gwen and rescue her from the jackal yeah they're there and they're doing stuff but i i wish they
0: got more lines more dialogue more individual choices so that they felt like an organic band of their own you know
1: but you know anyway um the band's called the mary janes so you (laughs) know mj always finds some way to make it about her
0: absolutely it's um it's one of those things i guess i mean what can you do yeah what can you do um so we got jackal 65 yeah so he's met his untimely demise here he's he's very dead. um <laughs> yeah, so
1: <laughs> that's because he he had the nerve to rightfully call out jackal six one six creepy obsession with Gwen.
0: yeah, I, I like that his he he's not been corrupted by this awful obsession with Gwen. and he's sort of quite conniving really, and it sort of sort of becomes apparent that he's essentially doing a lot of the running for Manwolf, and that when Manwolf does come back and he's like, hey, Can I run my gang again? He's like, it's probably for the best that you don't. And there's this whole interaction between them where he's like, you know, the stuff that Manwolf was doing wrong, like specifically provoking Ghost Spider and this weird complication that Manwolf has with his father, like he's free of that. So he's able to sort of run the gang more or less in his absence. And he appears far more than, than Jameson does over the course of this arc, particularly compared to the last arc. There's this follow-up thing with the symbiote spider that he captured from the previous arc. And he's now created this symbiote knocking out gas thing. His sedative. Symbiote sedative. And that gets in play here. I thought that, like, like, this is a bigger deal than they really make it out to be. But they've essentially created, like, a kryptonite for Gwen's symbiote. And then they don't really use it again after this point. And I'm like, I feel like this would come up. Yeah, they just
1: only made it the one time just to test it out. And then...
0: I'm pretty sure that if they ever do more manwolf stuff more jackal stuff because obviously jackal's floating about here in the gwen 65 comics that they will touch on the on this thing that there is a sedative that just knocks out gwen and knocks out her powers for a temporary period like i feel like that would win a lot of fights for them and if we ever see any of the characters from that sort of particular part of the rogues gallery again uh, in any meaningful capacity that that's something which would come up if they had to fight Gwen.
1: Yeah, and you know, Manwolf, even though he's uh, depowered right now, it's been revealed that he's been taking Jackal 65's werewolf formula.
0: Yeah, so like they don't really touch on his origin very much in Impossible Year, but they con- they they more outright confirm here that it's a mutagen that Jackal 65 has created that only works during specific lunar phases. And he's obviously quite frustrated about this and the fact that it wasn't strong enough to defeat Ghost Spider. He feels a lot more, you think he seems a lot more limited here and he's, he's a lot less physically imposing now that he's back in human form. Yeah, he's very much um, a bit of a lame duck during this arc.
1: Yeah, It's like he's only useful when the full moon comes out and then every other night of the year is just like, well then. yeah.
0: And I think the end of this arc was supposed to lead into a meeting between Manwolf and Jackal 616. They have that moment where Jackal 616 approaches those goons and says, take me to your leader, and it says, to be continued. And I think they were supposed to have a reckoning at some point. And I would imagine Jackal 616 would be like an upgrade for Manwolf, right? Like, he's got this even smarter, with even more mutagens, who can make him even more powerful, um, and he's even more conniving. Uh, and we'd see a sort of renewed Man-Wolf gang. I don't know what they call the Crescent Moon gang or something. But we'd see a sort of re- them resurgent in the next arc. But of course, they didn't go in that direction. But that did feel like sort of the way they were they were taking those particular villains.
1: Yeah. And even though he's been depowered, Manwolf's still going to be part of the horror villains as part of my agenda.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think it just sort of will come back once the moon turns around again. I think that's just the way it is for him. There's um a lot of hint of um, stuff hinted with his father as well in this arc that I thought was interesting.
1: Yeah, I'm just um, thinking if Jameson actually is aware that John is doing these criminal activities and then he's just uh paying everyone off just to bury it. Yeah, I think it is a lot like that. I think
0: to save face he obviously has to cover for John in very large ways as we see like he gets him out of prison, he uses his position in the mayor's office and with his legal team to sort of get him out. And he's obviously aware to some extent of how Manwolf works. Like he realizes that the lunar cycle has phased him out of that form. And he's now um, he's now back to normal. He's aware of all of that and the kind of effects it maybe has in his mind. So maybe it's sort of like he's aware of this terrible, terrible thing that his son's doing and he's covering for it. But he doesn't really like, he's not okay with it. So it's a, so it's a source of tension as we see in this arc here. Like it's um.
1: It kind of sounds like it, a reverse Osborne situation. Was Harry aware of Norman? Not a lot, but he didn't want to believe that Norman was a bad dude. Yeah, maybe it's something like that. And
0: I think in some way, Manwolf is, like, J- uh, John is hiding stuff from his father. Jackal 65 doesn't want the mayor to find out about their lair. So Jackal 65 uh, is concerned about this, That that would indicate there's the certain parts of information, perhaps that the full extent of Manuel's activities that the mayor is ignorant of, uh, maybe woefully ignorant of, but um, at least at that point, like stuff like the locations of places, like he's not an active part of the business. He's rather just covering for it because he has to.
1: Yeah. Uh, who else do we have here? Oh, we have a brief glimpses of Captain Stacy right here.
0: Yeah, so he's he's definitely rejoining the New York Police Department. There's sort of been a really sort of strange... We touched on it last time we did Impossible Year. Um, we sort of touched on this thing where it's like Captain Stacy has just been on a medical leave, and it's not like he had this big fallout with the NYPD where he turned sort of quite publicly against them and spoke out against them. All of that's sort of been put behind it now, and it's as if he had just had a heart attack, and he's returning back. No mention of all of the stuff which happened, all of the corruption, the fact he got beaten up in a prison cell to the point where he needed that medical attention. None of that. He is a captain in the NYPD again. It's acknowledged. And he's now having to deal with the mayor's corruption with the man-wolf and such.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's all we get to see of Captain Stacy, do we? Well, other than asking Gwen how was her first day of school?
0: Yeah, he's very much there. They're still, they're still sort of living in the same house. Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of the same as last arc, but now he's working again. I think from the way things look, the financial pressure, which was on the Stacys, has lifted from the previous arc, where it was sort of quite implicitly said that they were having issues with bills. Now we see Gwen having this sort of free pass at ESU. We see Captain Stacy returning to work that this isn't really an issue anymore. So we don't get any more of the, uh, the stuff where um, Gwen was doing odd jobs and freelancing and stuff.
1: It's almost as if Captain Stacy just suddenly had a big payday.
0: Yeah, it feels like that. It feels
1: like that. Absolutely. Um, and An uh, interesting villain that we get for, uh, well, the beginning of dog days are over anyway, technically, for all intents and purposes, Swarm. Yeah, I thought that was fun.
0: It was a sort of... uh, Because obviously he's he's existed as a person, like a swarm of bees that goes around skeletons and stuff.
1: What he is is he's a Nazi that's made of bees because I think his story goes is that he was experimenting with er irradiated bees. They ate him, but then uh, his consciousness was transferred onto the bees. Yeah, so he's living in
0: these bees and they sort of, they take concept to the maximum and have him take over this dinosaur skeleton in a museum and and it's Dino Swarm and it's very very fun that fight I thought
1: and did you notice how Swarm was annoyed at Gwen's presence he's like oh another spider person how many of you are there yeah there's sort of that MCU
0: type quipping back and forth there which I thought was quite fun about just the sheer amount of spider people there are, and and try to be a bit self-aware about that, I guess.
1: And then the way that they defeat him is that they had to corn dog him up. Yeah, like completely
0: smother him with webs. Now, I thought the interesting thing is, and it doesn't become apparent in that issue until until later on in the arc, that he was successful in getting this like DNA for Jackal. Like he was working with Jackal Six One Six, and he got him. Some kind of fossil or something that allowed him to create the mutagen that he used for Benji later on. It's sort of referenced in passing. So technically speaking, Swarm was successful in his mission, even though he was physically defeated by Pete and Gwen later on.
1: But I want to point out that whenever Swarm is adapted, they never use that he's the Nazi made of bees they just use nanotech for Swarm in media, and I'm just thinking, would this have gone a different route if Swarm was made of nanotech here? Yeah, maybe. I think they'd have to maybe use a different way of taking him down. I think the webbing still would have worked for nanotech. Yeah, I th- I think
0: they use the Nazi bees thing every now and then still, like uh, in the Spider Noir comics. Swarm is a big Nazi scientist who became a bee. Madam Swarm. Yeah, Madam Swarm. It's not that it's like unheard of still. I think it's it's I think it's the more fun way of doing it. I think there's an impulse to make everything some kind of mechanical or robot explanation. Instead of just having somebody just be a giant monster or been turned into something. I think that's the, the biological stuff is always more interesting. Like
1: even then um, these adapted forms of swarm, they're not even Fritz von Meyer. They're two completely different people.
0: Right, of course. Yeah. It's
1: yeah, it's very different. It's very different. I guess it's because, you know, they don't want to associate with the Nazis, although you could just say that, um, just leave out the part where Fritz is a Nazi.
0: I feel like there's, there's ways sort of through that.
1: But yeah, I, I don't know if
0: they should be afraid to ever mention that.
1: I don't know. Well, maybe if Swarm was a part of Hydra, that would have made sense. Yeah, there does seem to be quite a concerted
0: effort on Marvel's end, because obviously a lot of these villains are from the era where the Nazis were villains and i think that's fine i think that's a good thing that like you have hydra who are nazi stand-ins and stuff but they're trying to sort of sanitize it of all that get rid of all of that but i'm like having nazis as villains isn't as wacky goofy laughable villains i think is completely fine i i've always been surprised when they move away from that sorry this is very this is very tangential
1: (laughs) yeah i think that's enough of swarm right now let's move on to benji Yeah, Benji's
0: interesting. Benji's only there for like two or three issues, right? Yeah. But yeah, so she has this whole thing where it sort of seems like that she's motivated by ecological concern for endangered species or something that you'd find out in Australia.
1: I think Gwen mentioned that she wanted to be an animal preservationist.
0: Yeah, so they have that as her motivation, right? And because of that, she's gone and sought out jackal Miles Warren six one six. She's figured out he's in disguise. At ESU, and she's been like, "Hey, apparently this was her solution to climate crisis. To the climate crisis. Can you turn me into a giant, giant monster? <laughs>
1: <laughs> like preserving and, animals by turning into a giant rat? How how does that make sense? I don't know,
0: but she is like at her core. She doesn't have evil intent. She's very concerned about Gwen." Potentially being vulnerable to Warren in some way, but we don't really get into much of that. She is sort of implied to have died.
1: Um, No, all we see about her fate is just a bloodied backpack in the dumpster.
0: Yeah, she gets that one temporary dose where she gets to be the big monster to try and bring Gwen in. Misses her chance, goes back to Warren, who then he like lifts that weird sort of conical flask of serum or whatever. And then he's like something, something consequences and then it cuts away and you get the scream on the onomatopoeia, you know, and that's that. Right. And then and then, of course, like you say, you have that bloodied backpack and stuff. Um, So the implication is that she very well could have died. In my head, I think that maybe he did something worse, that maybe he like he turned her into a monster, but like he deprived her of her thinking faculties or something. I don't know. Like, he gave her what she wanted, but in a, like, more evil way. Uh, something like that.
1: Like, you think she's just holed up somewhere? Maybe,
0: yeah. I mean, that that makes sense, right? It'd explain why she'd keep away from everybody. It'd explain why, like, she's not gone after any of her stuff if, like, Warren has done something terrible. I think it would be strange to kill off this character without them ever having had a proper confrontation with Gwen. Like... I would imagine, again, like if they'd continued this arc, like it seemed to want to go in the direction of where, like, Manwolf, Jackal, uh, 616 gets to meet. That also over on 616, you'd have this leftover problem of Benji Jones having gone through whatever the Jackal's done to her and Gwen having to deal with that when she goes back. But we never get that, so. Yeah, I don't know.
1: No. So we can just mark Benji's fate as question mark. I think it's a very big question mark. And the same and the
0: reason why I think that will be more Benji is is for the same reason there's clearly supposed to be more of um, the other student characters they introduce is Kosi Sato, who is also like he has all these different interactions with Gwen and they seem very positive. I would argue there's a bit of romantic tension there. There's potential like you've put in the notes here, potential live interest question mark yeah cuz
1: it looked like that some panels looked like that he he seemed to be interested in Gwen. You know, he's walking her to class. He asked her for her number. He gives her his number.
0: Right. Yeah, like he's, you know, he's nice and he has these nice interactions. I think the last interaction particularly they have where like Gwen's talking about how she's a flake and how he's like reassuring her and saying, "No." And you have that sort of final panel. And this is actually the last time I think Kosei appears where they like lean in close to talk to each other Um, and it's sort of the way the panel's framed does make it look romantic but then that's the last we see of him so we never know Um, (laughs) which means he is the second love interest in two arcs that gets dropped Um, because
1: we never see harry in this run at all he's been mentioned a few times as in uh when gwen was asking if she could call harry just so the hospital can let her in because he's been there recently but there's no physical hairy appearance at all during this run.
0: Yeah, like, and it's not really acknowledged what happened there between Gwen and him properly. Like, I don't think he's dead, but don't seem to be together anymore. It's this whole thing, and they don't really properly get into it. And it's, yeah, I don't know. It's a shame. I think there's a lot of wasted potential here because none of this really gets picked up. Jackal does get more appearances, but Manwolf doesn't appear again. Benji doesn't appear again, Kosei doesn't appear again, and all of those characters had stuff to be set up, which is just isn't followed up on. Like, the Manwolf gang isn't defeated, this whole arc with it remains there, and these students from 616 that Gwen was interacting with Benji and Kosei, their arcs and respective interactions with Gwen remain very open um, and in a sort of strange place, and I, I do think it's a shame that the comic sort of pivots from here, like, we don't get follow up on any of this
1: i think it's just a bigger mystery than uh what's the biggest mystery i can think of right now where they just completely dropped everything i'm just gonna go with peggy carter's original husband in the sacred timeline when are we gonna get that answer
0: yeah who is peggy carter's husband in the mcu that's the (laughs) (laughs) nobody knows um but yeah like there's very much the case of plotline that was set up and had like a mystery behind it or like it's left open without closure and then the series was cancelled or there was a change in creative direction or whatever and all that stuff gets dropped and it does feel like that is the case here that we have like quite a few dangling plotlines that i think would be very interesting like at least the stuff with benji and the stuff with jackal and the man wolf gang I just want to see more of that. Like, I think that's interesting. I enjoy Gwen having, like, a street level personal beef. That's where she's always sat. She's always had, like, all of her villains and never these big cosmic villains. She never has these big super. She occasionally does, like, with Cindy 65, but even then, it's with other people. She usually, the bulk of her villains are street level enemies who she has personal, specific beef with. And I like that. That's a nice sort of base for Gwen to sit in. But I think we lost a lot of that here, and I think any book which picks up Gwen 65 again would be well served to pick up the stuff with Jekyll 616 and Manwolf 65 and their gang in New York 65 again, because that's all very interesting and there's a lot to draw from there.
1: But in fairness, even though we don't see Manwolf himself, his gang does stir up a little bit of trouble during Party People.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, uh, you, see, you see bits of his gang. You see, uh, Jackal 616 gets another minor appearance, but yeah, I, I, it's, um, like those are still there. And I think Party People is fine. Um, and I think Party People should have happened, but it feels like there's an arc between this and the next one, which is just completely missing, which I think is a real shame.
1: But on that note, should we end with uh, our final opinions of Dog Days Are Over, which is Hugo nominated, by the way? <laughs> Yeah, we can wrap up
0: our final opinions of Hugo nominated Doug Dayser over. Yeah, um, I like this arc. I like the sort of this ongoing struggle that Gwen has with trying to come to terms with her life with his public identity, and she's trying to juggle all of these different things at once. I like the way it's presented in this sort of very relatable style where Gwen has to consider all of these different day to day things. It's not slice of life, but it's close to it. Um, I like the ongoing struggle that she has with the Manowulf, I like how they are layering on specific beefs and different problems with him and his goons um you know even get recurring goons coming up which i thought was fun i like how they've folded in jackal 616 they've turned him from a peter parker villain to a gwen stacy villain which i think is much more appropriate and i like that he now lives on earth 65 and that's you know a villain for gwen to fight and i thought overall this arc was very promising there's a lot of really interesting stuff here. Right? And I just think that all of my grievances with it really mainly stem from just plot threads getting dropped and not picked up again. So that's really my issue with it, because there's a lot of good setup here. But we don't have any place to look to and say, yes, it got delivered there in the same way that you know we did for similar arcs back in the previous run of Spider-Gwen comics.
1: Yeah, I feel like I do agree with your opinion that, you know, it's a shame that there's a lot of drop plot threads just dangling, nothing to be resolved. It's just left there. But I really liked Dog Days Are Over because it gives Gwen a chance to uh, be a secret hero again well in the 616 anyway. Because I feel like that she uses 616 just as an escape to avoid all of her unwanted attention or celebrity status back at home and it's going to give her the chance to interact with the other web warriors Peter Parker in particular and even though Jess and Miles were advertised on the covers to be interacting with Gwen they never really show up but it was kind of nice just to think about it that uh, she could hang out with them more often and bringing in the jackal too as Gwen Stacy's villain divorcing from being Peter Parker's rogue it's because you know ultimately at the end of the day he wants to be with Gwen whether she wants to or not and the one constant is that he's always going to be creepy and obsessed with her and that's kind of a plus for him because that's the factor that makes you want to hate him
0: yeah he's a gross villain and he you know you love to hate him yeah
1: yep like no matter in what universe or adaptation jackal or miles warren he's just always gonna be a creepy dude and you know gwen gets the opportunity to beat him down well not as brutally in this arc but at least he does get called out on his creepy obsession with her and 616 gwen yeah no i think um I think
0: having that sort of that toxic side of humanity being properly shown as a villain and being called out as creepy and as villainous behavior is, it makes this a very thematically satisfying read
1: in a lot of places. Yeah, and Jackal being stranded on 65 when we get down the road does have severe consequences for Gwen going forward.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, look forward to that. Uh, it's going to be fun.
1: So should I start giving the spiel? Is that everything? Um. Yeah, I think that's everything. I'm happy with that. Okay, so next week, what we're actually just going to be reading is Ghost Spider Annual Number 1. It does take place during this run. It's not really essential reading, but it's still a fun read nonetheless. It takes place during the Acts of Evil event, where several heroes were paired up against the villains who they don't normally fight. So, for example, Punisher was up against the Brood Queen, Venom was fighting Lady Hellbender. Miss Marvel was fighting Super Skrull. All villains that they normally wouldn't fight. So this time, Gwen ends up tangling with Arcade when she ends up getting trapped in Murder World. And she has to end up fighting killer android versions of Spider-Man's rogues gallery. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, and this book, we've covered their work before on the show when we read Heroes Were Born Night Gwen, It was written by Vita Ayala. And this art is by Pere Perez, who you might know as the current artist of Spider Woman.
0: Can I just say that that is the best creative team, like all my days, absolutely amazing. Really look forward to breaking down Ayala and and, and Pere's work there. It's gonna be fantastic.
1: So as always, we'll put links in the description of where to buy and read it. And we also include a reading list. And if you had any questions or thoughts on the show for us, you can follow us at GS Groupies on Twitter, or you can email us at ghostspidergroupies at gmail.com. We also have a coffee page if you want to help us support paying the Podbean subscription price. So that's there if you want to chuck in a few dollars. Yes. Yes, please. I guess that's been today's episode. It's been good. It was longer than I expected, but it's good. I think we got a lot out of that. So once again, for this week, I've been Abigail. And I've been Pax go vote for dog days are over everyone (laughs) yes please all right bye bye bye